0: You know what it's like to anticipate something, don't you? Like if you're a kid, there are like two things that you always anticipate every year. Your birthday and Christmas. That's right. Some of you adults are like, I still anticipate Christmas. That's right. Or maybe you have like a vacation coming up and you're like, you're ready to get away. Like that is, you're ready for that. Um, I know I have, our family has the beach coming up and the, I, uh, I'd take it or leave it somewhat, but man, my kids are ready for the beach. See, going to the beach with a toddler, that's not vacation. So that's, I mean, if you said, Tess and I were going to the beach, I'd be like, absolutely. But, okay. But so we anticipate these things. We really look forward to them. And you know, for a kid especially, that as you move closer to Christmas, they're looking for all the stars to align, getting ready for the big day. There are certain things they're looking for. You know, on Christmas Eve, they may set out certain things. I mean, there are these signposts along the way that really build the anticipation. And then, finally, Christmas morning. We all understand that feeling of anticipation. That's the feeling I want you to bring with you into the story this morning as we step into the next part of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to pick up with chapter 11, where the story makes a turn. We're going to read the first half of the first verse of chapter 11, and then we'll watch how the story unfolds. Mark chapter 11, this is the first half of the first verse. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethsage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. We'll stop there. Because Mark is telling us that something is changing in the story. Every time that Jesus is on the move, there is a new section to the story. And now we come to one of the most important transitions of the story. It's his move to Jerusalem. And in his gospel, in the story that Mark records, as well as the other gospels, when they put put specific words or maybe phrases uh, in their story, in the telling of the story, They want the reader to link back to the Old Testament. I want you to imagine that sometimes when the biblical authors write in the New Testament, what they're doing is that they're putting a hyperlink on certain words or phrases. Kind of like when you read an article online or you get on Facebook and someone shares a link. It's in that blue with an underline and it takes you somewhere else. Well, what Mark has done is not only in in the style, transition us to a new section of the story, he has hyperlinked with the word Jerusalem. And when we read Jerusalem, we need to carry with us all of these promises that are tied to Jerusalem from the Old Testament. And so we need to pick up on that. It's hard for us to pick up on that. Now, as Americans, if I said, if I, if I use certain words or phrases, immediately you'd be picking up on that. You'd see the hyperlink. For example, if I said like 1776... I mean, immediately, you're there. Or if I started by saying, I have a dream. Immediately, you're there. I've taken you to a part of the American story. I want you to imagine that that's what's happening as Mark tells his story. He puts certain words and phrases together to hyperlink, to pull back images from a bigger story. That's happening right here. It's a story of anticipation. So now that man who's been telling us That he's bringing the kingdom of God now is headed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not insignificant, it's hyperlinked. I want you to see some places where Jerusalem stands in for the promises of God. Let's pick up with Isaiah 35, one place where we see a grand promise of God's return, and Jerusalem sits at the center. Isaiah 35 verses 3 and 4 and then we'll pick up the second half of verse 9 and then verse 10. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then verse 9. But only the redeemed will walk there and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion we singing. Zion's another word for Jerusalem. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. The people of God know that one day, God is going to return to Jerusalem. He will bring vengeance on His enemies, and He will bring salvation to His people. And now here you have this perfect human declaring that the kingdom of God is is now arriving on earth, and He's going to Jerusalem. That links to these promises that God will come and save His people. You can can feel the anticipation emerging. Jesus will walk into Jerusalem. He will bring vengeance, but also bring salvation to His people. There will be no more sorrow, no more sighing, and it will all begin here in Jerusalem. Now, this is one place where we find the link. Let's pick up another one in Isaiah. Isaiah 62, another place that Mark would be pointing us as the readers. Isaiah 62, verses 11 through 12. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your Savior comes. See his rewards. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called, sought after, the city of no longer deserted. Isn't that something? Here, we have we have Jesus coming to bring salvation. It will be finally that moment where His people are brought out of exile. Yes, they live in Jerusalem, but they're under Roman oppression. Now is the time where all that changes. And He will bring His recompense and His salvation. So Jerusalem, get ready. Now, There's another prophet, we'll stick with him also a little bit later, that many scholars believe that he pulls some of his language and imagery from Isaiah. It's Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. So you see a lot of connection between Isaiah and Zechariah. Notice Zechariah chapter 2. We'll look at verses 10 through 12, and we're actually going to pick up verse 13 here as well. "'Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you,' declares the Lord." Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Let's go back to that slide that was right after the Mark slide. I want you to see this as you pull together those three passages in the Old Testament what I see at the first front in the front part of this story is the right place. The right place, Jerusalem. When I put all that together, it's important for you and I to see that as we as we grow in anticipation, one signpost on the road is that it's going to the right place. It's Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's where all the promises will be fulfilled. And we see it here in this moment. You've read chapters one through ten, knowing something's coming, and now all of a sudden the story shifts, and he's headed to the promised city. It's the right place. It's Jerusalem. Well, that doesn't. The anticipation doesn't end there. We now take one more step into the story, and we see how anticipation keeps, keeps growing in the story. Take a look. Verses. We pick up the second half of verse one in Mark eleven. We'll go through verse seven. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went ahead and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. This section of the story is, takes us one step further in anticipation. Because not only do we have the right place, which is Jerusalem, we now have the right posture. We have royal action. In the Gospel of Mark, we we see just a few times Jesus giving direct commands to his disciples. And here's one of those places. He's acting the part of the king. He's telling his subjects, go do this, say this, and when you're asked this, you say that. And there's there's no wavering on what to do. It's royal action. And embedded in this section is a massive hyperlink. It's like blue, underlined, bold with italics. And it's like 20 font. It's that word, colt. Four times Mark records the word colt. It's an important hyperlink. It's an important word that maps onto all those promises about the coming king into Jerusalem. Because when the king comes, when Yahweh, when the Lord comes back into Jerusalem to bring both justice and salvation, you know how he will come? He'll come on a colt. So if we go back to where these promises are being written, we'll go back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's in the middle of all these promises we read this verse, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see that? This is pregnant with meaning. So that when Mark tells us four times that it's a cult, he is ensuring that the reader will tie back to this promise. So there's no question on what you and I should be anticipating in this moment. Now, just so we're clear, verse 9 doesn't stand alone here in the chapter. I want to take you to the end of the chapter, Zechariah 9, where he paints the full picture of the coming king. Check it out. Chapter 9, verse 14 and 16. I want us to see the fuller vision that Zechariah is painting. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. His sovereign Lord, the sovereign Lord, will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. The Lord their God will save His people on that day. As a shepherd saves his flock, they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. That's all about to happen. Not only is he headed to the right place, he brings the right posture. Now finally, the one who would sit on King David's throne will rule forever and ever. And we're within a matter of moments when that will happen. All we need is this guy, this perfect human who's been declaring the kingdom of God to step into Jerusalem. And the moment the toe goes down, everything changes. Now if you saw that happening on that day, you might do what the people did. You might start singing. It's that last part of the story that really brings the anticipation to its climax. Watch how Mark records it. Mark chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming Kingdom of our Father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. We just end with this declaration of praise. So we've had, we're headed to the right place, Jerusalem. We are bringing the, He comes with the right posture, royal action, and now we see the right praise. We see the right praise. Here comes the king. The king has come. That's what we see. Now, when they shout Hosanna, if you have the New International Version, if you have a digital version with footnotes or the physical version, it will have a note a note that lets you know that the word Hosanna has special meaning at this point when they shout that word. Here's what is in the bottom of the NIV on this note, Hosanna. Hosanna is a Hebrew expression meaning save, which became an exclamation of praise. So literally, the people are shouting, save, save, save. If you remember the end of that Zechariah passage, chapter 9, the Lord will come to save His people like a shepherd saves his sheep. And the people see that. That anticipation has grown and now finally is that moment. So all we're waiting on is Jesus to get into Jerusalem, get into the temple, and do His thing. We're probably within hours of history Changing. You can feel it. It's like Christmas morning. Like it's all going to happen. And the people are ready. The disciples are ready. The expectations are set. The signposts have been set up. The stars have aligned. It's all there. The hyperlinks have been laid out just so we can see all that is about to happen. Then comes verse 11. Take a look. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. You know it. You know it. it, it, We're there. But then the rest of the verse. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We would call that in English a letdown. We'd call that a disappointment. So you can imagine as Jesus heads to the right place, as he brings the right posture, as the people bring the right praise, all, all, all The whole situation aligned. Anticipation to the full. And what does Jesus do? He looks around and walks out. That is a disappointing moment. That is life not going as expected. And so we, the readers, we have some hope. We have some hope. But that's just because we have seen, we know where the story's going, and we've been walking the journey all along the way. I want to say this next part with some precision. So take a look. The only reason we have hope as the readers is because we know the end of the story. Mark has already tipped us off three times that the story would not happen like everyone expected. Jesus would not rescue his people on a military horse, but on a Roman cross. But on that day of his triumphant entry, the disciples and the people are left wondering, what do you do when things don't go as expected? Mark is always putting together the story in such a way as to draw the reader in, because this was a story written for the early Christians. And so he brings the reader in, those first Christians and us, to ask questions. And the question sitting in front of us is, what do you do when life doesn't go as expected? They had to deal with that. So I want to make that kind of our entry point into some application for like your life, my life, like right where we are. This is the way I would want to ask that question. We'll just ask it two different ways. How do we respond when life throws us a curveball? What do we do when life doesn't go as expected? That's a real question. Now it has a lot of application in our day. So if if you just graduated... Yeah, like the Febu- when you were in February looking forward to May, you didn't expect the coronavirus. You didn't expect to walk across a stage, particularly if you're at Roanoke Rapids, you didn't expect to walk across stage with no one in the crowd. That's not what you were expecting. When you get a terminal diagnosis, that's probably not what you were expecting. When you get married, you probably don't imagine your marriage to crumble. That's probably not what you envision. See... There are things in life that don't go as expected. You can really bank on that one, that that's the way life will go. And so that has a lot of application for us. And no matter what we think the future holds right now as we anticipate, maybe the way the coronavirus will go or the way the economy will move, we can probably bank on the fact that we can't predict it. And no model will be able to tell us exactly what the future holds for us. Life brings curveballs. And in those moments, you can make some decisions on how to navigate that reality. And for a lot of people, they give up on God. They say, I'm done. Because how in the world would a good God allow this to happen to me? How would He allow me to enter this kind of suffering? If He was good, He wouldn't do that. Here's, what, here's something I think we need to understand as we, as we re- deal and struggle with the curveballs, with life and all the unexpected things that come to us. I want to say it this way. Make sure we say it just this way. When we reject God because of unexpected suffering, we're saying we know the whole story, that God doesn't care. But we don't know all the details of our story. The one thing we can know is that God will turn everything to good for those who love Him. That's the one thing you know. All of us, at some point, have experienced one thing and years later reinterpreted or understood it a different way. Because stories have a way of shifting and changing over time. So yes, we may have suffering today, but God, for all those who love Him, will ensure it turns to good. Now sometimes that good comes after the body has finally given out. Sometimes the body doesn't come back from bad things. But be sure of this. That for all of those inside of the safety of God's kingdom, everything turns for good. You can take that to the bank. And so we, we live maybe in the suffering now, and it really stinks. And there are other words we could use. The English language provides us many words. I'm not allowed to use them, but you get the point. This is human experience. And yet... God ensures that all of that turns to good. So let's be very careful we're not short, that, we, that we do not live short-sighted, thinking we understand the way the story plays out. Oh, God cares, and we will see it one day. Now, that reality is not something that we just find in the New Testament. This isn't like just a New Testament reality. Throughout the history of God's people, they have had a vision for the end to provide them peace in their presence. Now, one place I find that on display more fully than anywhere else is in the book of Habakkuk. At the end of this book, after after struggling with God, arguing about why why He's seen and experiencing suffering, he comes to the end of the book in a prayer and words it this way. Habakkuk 3, verse 17-19. through Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. He calls the Lord Savior. Now you can't look at His present situation and say God is Savior. Because there was nothing about His present situation that would have said God saves but he has a vision for the end when God makes all things right. You know, I don't know if you and I really care if the, if the fig trees bud this year. It's not going to matter a hill of beans in my world. But if I lose a job, a child, get sick, well, now you're stepping on my toes. So you just take those verses and you put in real life things for you. If you lost your job, you lost a spouse, if your child is deathly sick, if you are depressed and sad all the time, just imagine, just go through the list. Can we end up at verse 18? Where we say, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will rejoice in God my Savior. That's a place we need to go to. Like right where you are, right where I live. So, let's, make a, let's take that all into a next step. Like something we can do today. It's probably my favorite uh, next step, at least in the top five in our time together over these many, many months, really over a year now. Picture your life 100 years from now and know all will be well. You know you'll be living in 100 years. You'll be living in the form you currently sit. Uh, I'm saying none of you. That's why I'm going 100 years. None of you are going to be here in 100 years in your current form. Now, some of you are a little more seasoned. So you may want to put a different number there, maybe Maybe something like 30 or 40. You know, me, 70. I don't think I'm living 70 years. Now, I'm going to beat Clyde's tenure. So, you know, if I get up to 107, I'm still going to be here. But, but you get the point. Put the number there that makes sense for you. But imagine life after you're out of this current form. Because you will be living. And you will be living, taking with you the form that you have taken here. Your character goes with you and then God's grace meets that and we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus in the new age, in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. But who you are becoming now matters. We are already beginning to enter the new creation. That's because Jesus rose from the grave. Like that's where new life broke into a dead world and now it's spreading. So imagine, where would you be in a hundred years? And and know that in God's kingdom, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. This is something Jesse and we talked about. I remember talking to Jesse about this. Everything is well. And for him, all is well. For Laura Conover, all is well. Now this isn't just like some utopia. I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere, out of some sci-fi book. This is a passage that is near and dear to me. I remember that Laura and Billy, we read this verse many times as she knew she was dying. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. Take a look. I'm taking that next step and I'm marrying it to these three verses. Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed day by day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So if we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. All of that new creation that's being created inside of you, all that renewal... All of it will be on display one day in your new body. And so take that hope with you. So cast a vision a hundred years from now and let that give you hope in your present. That's what we do. Now that doesn't make suffering easy. It doesn't make it any less sad and it doesn't mean we can't cry and be angry. That doesn't mean any of that, but it means we never let go of hope. We stay steady. Because we know that the God we serve can deal with all of life's unexpected moments and turn them to good. And we know that in this moment, when the disciples and the people stand in amazement because how unexpected, how unclimactic the moment is, we know Jesus has got a plan that actually will change the world. He will do that for all of His children. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the grace and the inspiration you gave Mark to put together this story with intelligence, to to insert all the hyperlinks so that we could gather and grow and see the pattern of teaching that has application for our life. Thank you for Jesus, for bringing him back to life by the power of your Spirit, now exalted, preparing a place for us. We look forward to the new creation, the age to come. And we know that is a solid hope. So no matter if we lose our job, if we die in this body, or a loved one passes or gets sick, in all of that pain, we stand and say we will rejoice. We will rejoice in God our Savior. All because of Your grace and all because of Your power, not from our strength. In His authority, the authority of Jesus, would You help us? And we pray. Together we say.